From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancers of the reproductive organs in women are known as gynecologic cancers. The most common types are endometrial, also known as uterine, as well as ovarian and cervical cancer. September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, an effort to help women recognize the warning signs and know what steps to take when it comes to screening and prevention. On today's program, we'll learn about gynecologic cancers from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, do detox diets really work? We'll discuss these quick-fix diets and get tips for healthier weight loss. And understanding the painful disorder known as fibromyalgia. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Gynecologic cancers are cancers that start in a woman's reproductive organs. Now, the five main types are cancer of the cervix, cancer of the ovary, cancer of the uterus, cancer of the vagina, and cancer of the vulva. Isn't it interesting? Cancer can occur just about any place. That's right. Every year, more than 100,000 women in the United States find out they have a gynecologic cancer. And more than 25,000 women die from cancers of the reproductive organs every year. September is Gynecologic Awareness Month, a good time to learn about screening for gynecologic cancers and to find out what can be done to prevent them. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gynecologist and surgeon, Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bacham-Gamez. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Bacham-Gamez, for being here and for talking about this important subject. And this is the month, September is Gynecologic Awareness Month. Why is it important to you? Why is it important to to women in America? Well, as a gynecologic oncologist, every day I care for women who have gynecologic cancers. I care for women who have cancers of the cervix, the ovary, the the endometrium or uterus, um, the vulva, and the vagina. And there are things that can be done to help reduce the risk of these cancers and to potentially prevent them. Which ones are most common? The most common cancer in the United States that happens in the gynecologic tract is that of the endometrium or the uterus. And the endometrium is the lining of the uterus. And how does uh, uh, that compare in numbers to breast cancer, for example? It's a much lower number than what we see in breast cancer. Um, There are about 60,000 new diagnoses of endometrial cancer every year in the United States. Are all of those cancers uh, difficult to diagnose? I mean, I think of ovarian cancer that one of the biggest problems with it is it doesn't present right away, and so it has time to grow. Does that happen with all gynecologic cancers? So so each gynecologic cancer is, is slightly different in risk factors as well as symptoms in which they present with. Endometrial cancer presents most often with postmenopausal or abnormal uterine bleeding. And um, any type of postmenopausal bleeding should be evaluated by a physician. Um, so any woman who has postmenopausal bleeding should be evaluated. So postmenopausal bleeding is endometrial cancer until proven otherwise. Fair? Fair. While postmenopausal bleeding can be caused by a variety of things, um, and actually only about 5 to 10% of women who have postmenopausal bleeding have a cancer, we don't have a screening test for it. And so women with, with postmenopausal bleeding should be evaluated with an endometrial biopsy. Okay, then we're going on down the tract. Correct. So, um, and one of the things I think that's important to note with um, postmenopausal bleeding and, and endometrial cancer is that um, regardless of the stage, 
oftentimes the most common, the presenting symptom is, is bleeding only. Um, when it comes to ovarian cancer, again, we don't have a screening test for that cancer. So we go by signs and symptoms. Um, the four most common symptoms in ovarian cancer include abdominal bloating, changes in bowel or bladder habits, um, abdominal discomfort or pain, and early satiety, which means getting full fast mm-hmm. when you eat. All right. And um, what about cancer of the uh, the cervix? So cancer of the cervix, um, one of the uh, most common findings uh, is that of an abnormal pap smear. That is the one cancer that we have an excellent screening test for, um, and that is the pap test. Um, it's both looking at cells, uh, looking for abnormal cells of the cervix, as well as the presence of a virus that causes cervical cancer called the human papillomavirus. Cancer of the vagina and the vulva, just give us a brief review of those two. Uh, both of those cancers are are often also caused by human papillomavirus. Vaginal cancer is uh, very similar to cervical cancer in its causes and its risk factors. Vulvar cancer, about uh, roughly half are caused by human papillomavirus. The other half are caused by uh, underlying uh, dermatologic conditions that are not related to human papillomavirus. So we obviously want to talk about uh, prevention and maybe in our second segment, but let's talk about risk factors. You mentioned that, that they're a little bit different different for these different kinds of reproductive system cancers. Yes. So let's start from the top, ovarian sure. cancer. So ovarian cancer, one of the biggest risk factors is that of family history. So having a family history of ovarian cancer or breast cancer actually increases uh, a woman's risk of ovarian cancer. And the reason that is, is that there are genes that are associated with both breast and ovarian cancer, such as the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Other risk factors for ovarian cancer include not having children, nulliparity. We know that that's a risk factor. Hmm. Um, And we know why that is. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? Is it is sort of interesting. Uh, there are, are hypotheses and theories that suggest that it may be related to uh, more ovulation, so the ovary being disrupted uh, more than uh, what would be seen when there's no ovulation happening during pregnancies. During, okay. <laughs> but we know that uh, women who have children, uh, women who breastfeed, uh, those uh, factors in their life actually decrease their risk mm. of, of ovarian cancer. All right, and risk factors for the other ones. So Risk factors for endometrial cancer are obesity is probably one of the number one risk factors for endometrial cancer. Um, Having diabetes increases the risk, hypertension, um, and some other underlying conditions such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is where the ovaries make an excess of estrogen. That can actually increase the risk of endometrial cancer. Hmm. All right, vagina and vulva. Vagina and vulva. So vagina, um, vagina and cervix, the risk sure. is human papillomavirus infection. And there are, there are actually several high risk HPV, uh, uh, strains that increase the risk of those cancers. The two most common are HPV 16 and HPV 18. And those are associated with about 70% of cervical and vaginal cancers. And does the immunization, the HPV vaccine help prevent those ones? It does. Wow. So there are actually three HPV vaccines that are now out on the market. And, um, and each one of them is, is FDA approved. Each one covers HPV 16 and 18. 
18. Some of them cover some of the other high-risk HPV um, viruses. Two of them actually also cover low-risk HPVs that cause most genital warts. And all of these sexually transmitted, the HPV sexually transmitted virus. All of these HPVs are sexually transmitted. All right, before we break, I want to ask you quickly, uh, update us on the guidelines for pap smears. So guidelines for pap smears, um, pap smears should start around age 21. Um, and the current guidelines are that in women over the age of 30, uh, if they have had normal pap tests, they can go, uh, they can go three years, uh, between cytologic, uh, tests, which means just the pap test, the pap smear alone. Um, but co-testing is where we test the cells as well as for HPV or the high-risk hemopapillomavirus. And if that test is negative, it can be uh, performed every five years. All right. We're talking with gynecologic surgeon Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez, and we're talking about cancers of the reproductive tract. When we come back, we'll talk more about what's really important, and that is prevention. This is Gynecologic Awareness Month, and we've also got a Myth or Matter of Fact coming up. That's right. When we come back, Myth or Matter of Fact, taking birth control pills increases your risk of cancer. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking about gynecologic cancers with Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez because this is Gynecologic Awareness Month, September. we got a myth or matter of fact. That's right. Myth or matter of fact, Dr. Bacham-Gamez, taking birth control pills increases your risk of cancer. Is that a myth or a fact? I would have to say that that's a myth. Okay. And, um, and Remember, I'm a gynecologic oncologist. <laughs> I care for women with ovarian cancer. Um, birth control pills actually reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. If you use birth, if women who use birth control pills for at least five combined years um, in their life reduce their risk of ovarian cancer by 50%. Because they don't ovulate? That's what the, that's the hypothesis. That's the theory. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in women who are at high risk, meaning those who have BRCA mutations, uh, which put them at risk for developing an ovarian cancer, using birth control pills reduces their risk as well. Uh, mm. Again, five years decreases their risk by 50%. Hmm. All right. Uh, any cancers where you have an increased risk with birth control pills? I think there's still a little bit of controversy regarding that uh, in breast cancer. Um, we certainly still, we know that our patients with BRCA mutations are at higher risk for developing breast cancer as well um, because of that gene. And we still uh, recommend that they, uh, that they take birth control pills and it does not appear to increase, to add to the increased risk of breast cancer. What about uterine cancer? Any relationship there? Certainly. So there are some cancer, or there are some conditions that actually increase the risk of uterine cancer, such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, where the ovary is producing a lot of extra estrogen. Um, and birth control pills actually help to reduce the risk of endometrial cancer uh, in patients where they are producing a little bit of extra estrogen. Can you talk to us in general about the treatment of these reproductive uh, cancers? Uh, what modalities are available? And, and I'd like to ask you, too, about robotic surgery for using <laughs> sure. that. Okay. So um, for most of these cancers, the treatment starts with a surgical, um, a surgical procedure, such as uh, in ovarian cancer, usually it's removing the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, um, and the uterus, so basically a, a full hysterectomy. We oftentimes also need to remove some lymph nodes, um, 
Um, and then there's a fatty apron that hangs down from the stomach called the omentum. Um, and then also some biopsies throughout the abdomen. The reason for that is we're surgically staging and removing tumor so that um, the next treatment that goes hand in hand with surgery which is chemotherapy, um, hopefully has better uh, activity against the cancer. So, that's, so if you reduce the cancer burden, the chemotherapy will work better. Correct, yes. And we call that debulking. Um, and so for ovarian cancer, the treatment is surgery and chemotherapy. For a uterine cancer or endometrial cancer, most women, if it's early stage, can be treated with surgery alone. But we also use surgery to help us understand whether the cancer has spread outside of the uterus. So again, usually it's a hysterectomy. Most of the time we remove the tubes and the ovaries as well. And then often we do what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where we remove the first draining lymph nodes in the pelvis that, dr- that drain the uterus. Um, that can be done in a minimally invasive way, and we oftentimes use robotic surgery for that. Hmm. Um, there's special technology on the robot that allows us to find those lymph nodes if we use a fluorescent dye. We can do it laparoscopically as well. So now in robotic surgery, you're over at a control panel. You're, you are actually doing the surgery, but through the hands of a robot. Correct. Yeah. So the robot basically acts like the human being, the human surgeon, as if I was standing right next to the patient, only it allows me a little bit more ergonomic control so that instead of standing there for the hour, two hours that's needed for the surgery, uh, the robot's actually holding the instruments. It's doing exactly the same things that I would be doing if I was standing there, but it allows me to sit at a console and allows me to see a little bit more a little bit more in 3D, um, and uh, and move millimeter by millimeter. Incredible. And that's just for that sentinel node, to get that node? Well, we actually use the robotic surgery for the full procedure. Okay. So we can use it for the hysterectomy and the removal of the, the tubes and the ovaries as well. Um, cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is actually, it, the treatment really depends on the size uh, of the cancer in the cervix and whether or not there's evidence of spread to lymph nodes on a preoperative uh, imaging test, such as a PET scan. Mm-hmm. Um, very early stage cervical cancers, especially those that are microscopic in size, um, those that are picked up by pap smears, um, are oftentimes able to be treated with a, a radical hysterectomy alone. And with a radical hysterectomy, we also tend to remove either a sentinel lymph node in the pelvis or even all of the lymph nodes that are draining the the, uh, the uterus and the cervix. If there's low risk, if the, if the cancer is deemed to be low risk, then oftentimes we don't need to do any additional treatment, just follow-up surveillance. If we find that there's risk factors for recurrence, we often then will treat with radiation after a radical hysterectomy. That would be for a higher grade tumor or larger tumor? It would be for a larger tumor, yes. So larger tumor, deeper invasion, um, or if we see a feature called lymph vascular space invasion, which is where little pieces of the tumor are starting to move into the lymphatic channels. And you would see that under the microscope? Yep, our pathologist would see that under the microscope. Um, in patients who come in with a cancer who's, that's too big to remove surgically, or if there's evidence of spread to the lymph nodes, those patients are actually treated with chemotherapy and radiation. And it's called chemoradiation because we give the chemotherapy 
at the same time as they're getting the radiation. Wow. Because the chemo actually sensitizes the cancer to the radiation. It makes the radiation more effective. Wow. They work synergistically. Yeah. How'd you figure that out? Clinical trials. Hmm. So head-to-head clinical trial where patients got radiation and they were ran- patients were randomized to either receive radiation or radiation plus chemotherapy, and the radiation plus chemotherapy group did better. Always something new. What do you, what what is new on the horizon? What are you excited about? Well, there are there are a lot of clinical trials um, that are ongoing, not only here and at Mayo Clinic, but also around the world. Um, and so, novel therapies, um, better ways to detect cancer, uh, all of those things are very um, very much on the horizon right now, and things that uh, areas that researchers um, across the world are working on. What about your research? So my research actually um, focuses on endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. Um, and I kind of describe it as two extremes. One is that of trying to, uh, to develop an early detection or screening test for endometrial cancer, because we don't have one right now. Um, the, the only sign or symptom that most women have is, is postmenopausal or abnormal bleeding, and it doesn't correlate with stage. You could have advanced stage disease and have just a little bit of spotting, um, and it's painless. So most women kind of ignore it. Don't even know. Yeah. Right. Um, so we are working towards developing the first screening test or early detection test uh, using self-collected tampons. Um, looking for molecular signatures uh, in the vaginal fluid that come from the uterus um, as way as a way to identify uh, pathology or something abnormal up inside the uterus. And then the other end of the spectrum that uh, I'm involved in when it comes to endometrial cancer research is that of the need for better treatments for advanced stage disease. Right now we treat advanced stage endometrial cancer with chemotherapy uh, and we need novel therapies because that's that's not enough. So we actually have developed um, a novel therapy, which is a virus that is oncolytic, meaning that it kills cancer cells. And we have a clinical trial that will be opening in September uh, that actually is for women with advanced stage endometrial cancer, where they can be treated with an oncolytic virus against the cancer. All right. So it is Gynecologic Awareness Month. What's the most important message you'd like to get across for American women? Absolutely. The, the most important message for women in the United States to hear is that if they are diagnosed with a gynecologic cancer, so a cancer of the ovary, a cancer of the uterus, cervix, vagina, vulva, they should be seen and cared for by a gynecologic oncologist. All right. Perfect. And you are one. Gynecologic surgeon, Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gamez, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll debunk the detox diets and later on the show, improving care for fibromyalgia patients. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. There's no question that you can take steps to prevent heart disease by living a healthy lifestyle. But is there anything you can do to help prevent memory loss? Dr. Ronald Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, says a study by the National Academy of Sciences reports that there are some things you can do that may help prevent memory loss as you age. The National Academies of Science reported that there may be three factors that can reduce the likelihood of developing cognitive decline later in life. 
The first was intellectual exercise. Dr. Peterson says the second factor is controlling blood pressure, especially during middle age. And the third was aerobic exercise. Getting out there, being physically active may reduce your risk of developing cognitive decline later. Dr. Peterson says this information is good news because most people can work to embrace a healthy lifestyle that includes staying active mentally, working with their health care providers to control blood pressure, and moving more. As our lifestyles are changing, hopefully becoming more healthy, that those kinds of risks will be reduced somewhat. Dr. Peterson also says eating a heart-healthy diet that includes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean meats, low-fat dairy, and fats such as olive oil may help as well. Dr. Peterson also says that the intellectual exercise referred to in the study was a specific type of training developed for the research. And in other news, most people know that heart attack is associated with symptoms such as chest pain, a feeling of chest tightness, and shortness of breath. But many people don't know many details about heart failure. Heart failure, sometimes known as congestive heart failure, happens when your heart muscle doesn't pump blood as well as it should. Certain conditions, such as narrowed arteries in your heart or high blood pressure, gradually leave your heart too weak or stiff to fill and pump efficiently. Not all conditions that lead to heart failure can be reversed, but treatments can improve the signs and symptoms of heart failure and help you live longer. Lifestyle changes such as exercising, reducing salt in your diet, managing stress and losing weight can improve your quality of life. One way to prevent heart failure is to control conditions that cause heart failure, such as coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, or obesity. Talk to your health care provider if you have questions about heart health. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There are apparently, Tracy, a lot of people who are turning <laughs> to popular detox diets in the hopes of cleansing their system and jump-starting a weight loss plan. Ooh. The suggested detoxification usually involves a period of fasting, followed by a strict diet that includes raw vegetables, fruit, juice, and water. Well, that just sounds Is that the lovely. One you're on? No, I don't <laughs> detox anything. While some people report feeling better and more alert, there is little scientific evidence that a detox diet actually removes toxins from the body. Here to discuss detox and other fad diets is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thanks for having me. Kate Zaratsky, nice to see you. Always good to have you on the program. And we want to know about these detox diets. Why are they so popular? Well, there's probably truth to there's probably some diets are better than others. However, when it comes to detoxification, our bodies already has a system in place to take care of anything, any waste that it needs Mother to get Nature rid of. Mother Nature does that for us. Exactly. What, what are the toxins? that? What are people talking about? Well, and I wonder if it comes from the idea that we eat a lot of highly packaged or processed foods. Hmm. And so foods that are coming in packages that maybe have a lot of, say, ingredients that aren't as healthful, um, whereas um, compared to, I think, when people are you know, quote-unquote detoxing, they're eating more fruits, more vegetables, drinking more water, and they do feel different. They feel better eating those more healthy foods. The start of these diets involves a fasting period. Some of them can be at least a day. I mean, some of them are a couple of days. It's crazy. 
or is that not a big deal? Is fasting is fasting dangerous? Well, it it probably depends how the fast is done. I mean, fasting has been around for many years, and within many cultures and religions, fasting is a common practice. Um, I think the idea is to look at the purpose behind it, and going into a fast and coming out of a fast are probably uh, part of that you know, key into making it part of a healthy diet. It seems to me like fasting would be detrimental to a healthy metabolism. Is that is that true? Well, there's some, some studies to suggest that even dieting or yo-yo dieting, and if you could put some of the types of fasting that have become popular within that, um, that there probably are changes that go on with our metabolism. And I think the research is, is fairly young, so to speak, and, and that we don't have all the answers or a complete answer yet, but there's some research to suggest that there are changes that happen with one's metabolism after significant weight loss and, you know, due to extreme dieting. I think the term hangry was invented by people who were fasting. They're hungry and they're angry because of it. <laughs> and it's all because of detox. I'm sure of it. Maybe not. Well, and studies show when people come out come off of a period of not having food, they tend to crave or seek out foods that are more processed, hmm. snack-type foods, foods that are very high in calories. And so I think it's the idea of if you're coming off of a fast, you want to have nutritious and healthful foods readily available to you. So we've pretty much established that there's no scientific basis for the detoxification type of diet, but are there any ones out there that, that you would say you would warn people about that, that are actually dangerous? Right, and I think when you when you start talking about diets that are highly restrictive, that are removing food groups or important foods, doing anything like that for long term, you do run the risk of having nutrient deficiencies. So you you want to look at a diet any diet, kind of on a, the basis of are you meeting all your food groups? And within that, uh, anything that's too restrictive probably isn't a good idea. You know, Mother Nature gave us very healthy foods. It's probably just how we choose to treat those foods and use those foods. And I think if we're eating more whole foods um, or f- foods prepared from whole real-type ingredients, we're probably going to do okay. So what's hot right now, though? Well, there's a lot of diets that are restrictive in terms of cutting out sugars or processed foods. And, you know, by all means, you can easily replace those types of things with more nutritious foods. So those types of trends are, you know, probably have some validity to them. Um, However, I think it's just, you know, when people are looking at doing or changing their diet, I think the, they also have to look at how realistic it is for them to sustain mm-hmm. a change for the long term. And it might be that there's good aspects within that diet or that program, but to look at how sustainable is it for me, because if I can only do it for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, then am I going to fall back into habits that aren't so healthy? These fads with regard to dieting, truly do come and go. For example, everybody was on the Atkins diet. Don't even hear about it anymore, right? No, and they, and I think they morph and they, they change. You know, Atkins went to maybe something that was a little more sustainable to like a South Beach type diet. And now I think people have moved on to more paleo type. So they're kind of versions. Paleo? Of one to the next. Eating like a caveman. Oh, <laughs> that's a paleo diet? All <laughs> right, so we want to know from, you, a registered dietitian, Mayo Clinic, 
I came into you and I said, listen, Kate, I'm going to get healthy and I want to lose some weight, what would you tell me? I would tell you to stick to the basics. I think it would be helpful for anyone to just look at their current diet and look for areas where you maybe could see some benefits from change. For instance, if you're commonly stopping at fast food on the way home, what would maybe be some quick meal ideas that you could prepare at home or have those staples in your house? Could it be that you have canned beans or that you're cooking your meat or getting frozen fish, having frozen vegetables or already, you know, a bag of salad, those types of things that can be a quick meal prep. And just looking at those key components in terms of all of our food groups. Do you have fruits, vegetables? Do you have a good source of protein, whether that be an animal or a plant protein? And do you have some nutritious carbohydrates, some whole grains, some healthy starches in your diet? you got to cut that sugar too, Shannon. I know, and i got to get rid of those canned beans too. <laughs> the Mayo Clinic diet has not gone out of style, has it? No, and I think the Mayo Clinic diet, because it is an overall healthy diet and allows people within you know many different styles of eating to adapt to eating, just maybe including more fruits and vegetables, which most Americans don't eat enough of. So it really encourages eating more of those things. It encourages healthier, leaner proteins. Again, that could be plant or animal. And then it allows for some healthy fats. It also does have an allowance for a little bit of sweet, which I think speaks to the fact that we're all human and we like sweets, but it's all about moderation and a smaller portion. The update to the nutrition labels has been delayed a little bit. What do you know about that? I think at this point, all we know is that the uh, food manufacturers and the grocery stores have asked for an extension um, in terms of changing the label. So the the uh, deadline date, which was July of next year, has been extended. And so at this point, um, some companies have already made the changes, so you might see new food labels. Um, but I would say the majority are still the the label that we've had for many, many years. All right, but don't give up. They're coming. The new labels are coming. I would hope that they're still coming. <laughs> we'll have you on when they finally come out. We'll have you back. Kate Zaratsky, dietitian at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about Mayo Clinic's fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, there's a condition called fibromyalgia, and it can cause pain. Well, it usually causes pain, and it can do that virtually anywhere, sometimes everywhere in the body. Mm. In addition to the pain and the discomfort, it can cause sleep problems, fatigue, and even emotional and mental distress. Researchers believe that fibromyalgia amplifies painful sensations by affecting the way your brain processes pain signals. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, fibromyalgia affects a around 4 million U.S. adults, or about 2% of the adult population. Here to discuss fibromyalgia is the practice chair of Mayo Clinic's Fibromyalgia and Chronic Fatigue Clinic, Dr. Arya Mohabit. Welcome to the program, Dr. Mohabit. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. So, Dr. Mohabit, I've, I've always thought that anybody willing to take 
care of people with fibromyalgia had to be special. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get interested in uh, this as your practice? As a general internist, uh, we're trained to see patients with a variety of conditions, anything from heart to lung to kidney issues. And one of the issues that uh, commonly went unrecognized or under-focused was chronic pain conditions. And as you just said, many of our patients do have chronic pain conditions that can affect them head to toe. And oftentimes they will have fatigue symptoms with that, some mood symptoms with that as well. And for me personally, I felt like I was providing no significant service to these individuals when I would see them. And so as a young doctor, you were, just, you were as frustrated as they were. I, I Absolutely. You know, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and thinks, how can I not be helpful today? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was one of those things that I just needed to get better at this. And so I just started reading more trying to get more involved in the patient's cares uh, with this condition, started shadowing more providers in our fibromyalgia clinic. That led to one thing after another, got involved with more research in this, and started really dedicating more and more of my clinical time to this condition. You know, a lot of us felt for a long time that this was sort of a wastebasket diagnosis. If somebody came in and they had unexplainable uh, pain on the basis of x-ray or imaging or whatever, we didn't know what was wrong with them. We said, well, you, you have fibromyalgia. Not so much true anymore. And, and, and what is this condition? How do you define it? That's, that's a great point. Uh, like many conditions on this planet or many thought processes, we, we really didn't understand what we were talking about. So there was a time back in our history that we would tell people, don't sail too far west. You're going to fall off the earth, right? So <laughs> There was that time as well. And I think when it comes to chronic pain, many of us just didn't understand how to speak the language of pain. And many of us thought all pain is the same. Pain in the form of rheumatoid arthritis must be the same as in osteoarthritis, and that's the same as in what's in fibromyalgia. And we've learned that's absolutely not correct. And so people will always ask me, what does fibromyalgia even mean? That's one of the most common questions I get. And I tell them I'm going to define it the scientific way that I'm going to say it the human being way. And the scientific way is that fibromyalgia is a chronic centralized pain sensitivity syndrome. So then people will look at me like, what does that actually mean? So So the human way is? The human way, exactly. (laughs) Basically, states that an individual will have chronic, meaning long-lasting, diffuse, meaning head-to-toe, migratory, meaning sensations move around, pain, which is predominantly felt as joint and muscle aches and pains, but in the absence of inflammation. Is it arthritis? Is it a form of arthritis? It is not. So the, the key distinction here is that in arthritis, you truly will see inflammation occurring in those joints. And that's what you see in osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, these kinds of conditions. In fibromyalgia, no, you do not have joint or muscle inflammation, which is what sets that apart from these other conditions. No question in your, in your mind that this is real. Absolutely real. How do you diagnose it then? So the diagnosis is done twofold. The first is you essentially have to rule out other mimickers. And so there are many conditions that I've already stated, but the osteoarthritis, the lupuses, mixed connective tissue disorders, there are many conditions that mimic fibromyalgia. So you need to ensure that you're not dealing with one of those because the treatment strategy is completely different. So half of the ballgame is making sure you're not dealing with something else. The other half of it, we basically follow the American College of Rheumatology's guidance, and so there is a 1990 diagnostic criteria which is based off of an individual having a certain degree 
degree of pain for a certain amount of time and having positive what are called tender points, areas in the body that we press that hurt. Then the American College of Rheumatology in 2010 said, you know what, most of the male patients that are diagnosed with fibromyalgia never actually had tender points. And so they've come up with a different diagnostic strategy, which involves asking the patients Hmm. pain questions, fatigue questions, and a whole variety of other questions. What are the treatment options? So treatment options can be divided up into two broad categories. There is the medication treatment strategies and what are called non-medication treatment strategies. From a medication standpoint, there are three drugs that have been approved by the FDA, and these are medications that have been approved for other conditions, but we found that based on our studies, they actually help patients with fibromyalgia. Uh, In addition to the medications, there's a wide variety of non-medication treatment strategies. Some of these are things that most of us already know about, physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of these lend more into some of the complementary and integrative approaches. When you say cognitive behavioral therapy, what does that mean? So cognitive behavioral therapy is a technique used by many of our occupational therapists as well as many of our psychologists, and they utilize a technique essentially the way I look at it is how can we retrain your brain? Because what we found out in fibromyalgia is that there are essentially software issues. It's not a hardware issue with the brain and spinal cord, but software uh, that has essentially become dysregulated. And how can we retrain the body and the mind to function as one to downregulate or decrease that amplification of pain and fatigue that we're seeing in patients? Is that what you're doing at the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue clinic? A lot of what we do there (laughs) is we see patients who have either never received a diagnosis diagnosis or they have gone through an extensive workup to come in the end with this diagnosis. And what we do is we educate them. We spend a good amount of our time uh, on a one-to-one visit with one of our nurses, then a one-to-one visit with one of the doctors. And then we have an eight-hour treatment program that basically is aimed at educating them as much as possible. Because the first and most important thing we can do is to educate our patients, tell them what this condition is, what it is not, and how to best fight this. Like Dr. Shives was saying, you know, it used to be that when in the wastebasket diagnosis, so do you also educate providers? Absolutely. This will be our second year that we're having a Mayo Clinic Fibromyalgia Continuing Medical Education Conference. Uh, We're able to reach a good number of providers uh, in, in that manner. We have written a couple of chapters in different books as well. We're trying to get the word out more uh, to across the nation, across the world. Um, it, it's not a condition that's only here in the States. We've, we have great literature that it's worldwide. Uh, the prevalence rates are increasing. I know you had quoted a number in that kind of 2% range. Some of the more recent studies will show up to about 8% of the oh population. Gosh. So one out of every 12 individuals could have this condition. So do you feel better now when you go home at night that you've actually helped these people? I do. You know, in a way that was somewhat self-serving, I would leave... Uh, I would leave these visits not knowing if I actually reached anyone in the in the beginning. And now uh, it's one of those feelings that you know you've done some good, you've educated someone, you're giving them the tools to fight this condition. When so many other individuals are turning the other way and not talking about this, it's, it's good for patients to know that there are many of us out there that want to talk about this condition. What research is being done or what does the future hold? Yeah, The future, I think, at this point is looking not only at treatment strategies, but we're also looking at more in terms of why this is occurring and how can we Uh, see who is at risk for this. So a lot of our studies are now focusing more towards genetic
genetic predisposition. I think that's going to be the wave of the future. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are very happy hearing the things that you've uh, been able to tell us today about fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Congratulations on all your work, all the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Aria Mahabat. He's practice chair of the Mayo Clinic Fibromyalgia and Chronic Fatigue Clinic. Great to have you on the program. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.